going to run into this term called heuristics. Um, so I want to address it just for a second. Um, basically, a heuristic is a known set of usability guidelines or best practices against which you judge a service. Um, heuristic evaluations are synonymous with expert reviews. So you might call someone in who's a UX person and have them judge a service. Um, and the idea is that they're well enough versed in best practices that kind of on a time constraint without really having to dig too deep, like at a glance, they just see patterns or they see anti-patterns that they can make it really, they can provide an accurate gut check on a usability of a service. It requires that someone on staff or third party kind of has their finger on the pulse, that they're invested in staying up on these things, especially when it comes to like the web, the best practices of the web change rapidly. So, um, but it basically means that you have an, if you have an expert on hand, they can provide gut feelings at a glance. So the idea here is that um, you know we have basic library websites that all kind of like they all share a similar pattern. We've seen them before, right? Um, when you imagined what a library website looked like. Um, a few slides back, you probably came up with something a little bit like this. It has a top logo and has a big broad search box and probably has a carousel in the middle. Um, and the idea is that um, someone on staff or like a third party or you do some Googling and you find something um, called best practices for library websites, um, someone's going to be able to make a blanket statement. So let me give you an example. Um, Carousels are bad, and we shouldn't ever have them. Um, what a blanket statement. <laughs> um, and I say carousels are mostly bad, um, and people like will retweet it and share it with their bosses and stuff. Um, but that's based off like, a lot of stuff I've dug up in the past. Um, and that's really a different topic. Um, I have some old slides where I rant about carousels if you're interested. Um, but that's not really the point. I guess the point for me is that um, I don't really think heuristic evaluations or expert reviews are really the most economical tool, especially for libraries. It's useful to have someone on staff or on call that can point these things out to you. Um, but it really puts the onus of thinking about user experience on one person when it really should be at all levels of an organization. This is a, this is a CMMI-based model that um, my friend and colleague, uh, Coral Sheldon Hess, made back in 2013. Um, and what it is showing is just, um, just kind of like a ladder of, or a ladder or levels of the, like how, how claws deep user experiences at an organizational level. Many of us, um, maybe some of you guys attending the webinar right now, um, maybe your organizations are at like level one where decisions are made based on staff's preferences, management's pet projects, users, and the user experience of patrons is rarely discussed. Um, sometimes at the best, where if you are able to have like a little bit of like a usability side committee, you can like elevate yourself to a three where the organization cares about UX. There's one or two UX champions on staff that bring up users' needs regularly. Um, decisions are made based on established usability principles and studies from other organizations, which is totally legit. But what Coral suggests is that an organization that's doing a great job of UX thinking is visibly better than one that's not. 
And you see the difference is not just in the seamless ease of its patron touch points or the usability of its website or its well-designed physical wayfinders or uh, the increase the, in, the increased number of, circu of circulated items or database usage, but in the way that staff treat each other. So when an organization is well and truly like steeped in UX with total awareness of and buy-in on user-centered thinking, um, its staff enact, enact those principles whether or not they're facing patrons. The library, rather than doing, or so rather than doing what a library does, because that's what a library does, um, we should, as an organization, pay attention to how our patrons are using our services and then go ahead and craft services around that behavior. Because the point is that users don't really have to use the library. Um, there are other services competing for your patrons' attentions, but you know, librarians just don't tend to be conditioned to think this way. Um, you know, we have a long-standing discipline. We maybe have like a dusting of entitlement. But if something prevents patrons from walking in or using the website, um, then circulation and database usage is going to drop. Foot traffic is going to drop. And this makes it just that much more difficult to justify budget for the coming year. So a heuristic evaluation is all well and good if you know the right people, but it requires someone who spends all their time thinking about this stuff when, and just seeing patterns of problematic UX. And that's not always practical. So what, um, what I like to talk about instead is this notion that's suggested by um, Boyan Kim, and I think she did it at uh, Code for Lib. Um, this notion called like heuristic evaluation in reverse, um, which is kind of like a highfalutin way of obviating the need for an in-house expert. Instead, you find the pain point, uh, and then you think about it, and then you Google for some answers, and then you try to apply them. Now, the way you find pain points is by performing field studies. Um, what this really means is you're just sort of like creeping around your library building or you're observing data on your uh, on your website and you're just observing and looking at people for a long time. You observe what they do. Where do people scooch the chairs? Are they ignoring your awesome decor and sitting against the wall because they need to charge their phones? What are they doing? Does it look like it sucks? How can we make it better? So then, I don't know, you draw a cartoon. And this cartoon is actually something legit. It's called a customer journey map, and it can be very high or very low tech. It doesn't matter, because any implementation of a customer of a customer journey map may be like the most bang for your user experience. Um, the idea is that you storyboard the process people go through when engaging with a service or product, noting how many steps it takes to do something and so on. And if you Google usability studies, you're going to find a ton of things. But the 2014 conversion rate optimization report from um, eConsultancy suggests that a customer journey map is the most useful immediate thing that you can do. 95% saw an immediate improvement in like their website use and their traffic compared to a 72% for all the other methods. And the other thing is that this is really a no-budget way to go about things. Customer journey maps begin with a user story. And a user story goes something like this. As a blank, I want to blank so that blank. 
let's start with something that's kind of like common to all of us, right? Um, which is the which I think is like a kind of like universal indicator of library success. Maybe maybe except for academic libraries, but um, let's talk about like card uh, library card registration. Um, so let's. Let's let's pretend. So, like, as a young dad, I want to sign up for a library card so that I can check out some books. Oops. And this is kind of what <laughs> my customer journey map looks like. I sketched this on an iPad and uploaded it, and it's really ugly. Um, but the idea is that I have like a little squiggly line that goes to a dot, that goes to another dot, and I'm it's just a it's just a goofy storyboard. Um, but what I'm trying to do is imagine and visualize the touch points during a particular task, in this case, like card registration. So, so how does it go about? Well, I got to find out when the library is open on Saturday because that's the only time of the week that I can like drive, like I can drive over. Um, I actually have to drive to the library and park. I have to make sure I pay enough for parking if I have to park on the street. I have to enter the library, approach the desk, start talking to people. They're going to hand me a really long form, and then I'm going to have to have remembered to bring proof of residency and identification, or maybe I'll have to get sent home to do it, and then maybe I finally get a card if everything goes smoothly. And only then does my library experience really even begin. Um, Oops. Notice that increasingly the journey often begins online um, and is punctuated by time and potential disenchantment before the patron even enters the building. Cog registration is probably painful in this case because libraries ask folks to fill out a giant ass form, um, but patrons are probably already walking in with like preformed negative opinions. Um, maybe they're in a bad mood, but um, you know. When people are in a bad mood, they kind of love to tell you their opinions, so you can ask. Um, and they'll probably tell you what you're doing wrong. This is something called, uh, um, uh, <laughs> it's a screenshot with circles and crosses on it, um, but it's, uh, it's called XO Participatory Design. And I bring this up as a tangent, and this is specifically University of Mich uh, the uh, case study published by University of Michigan. You can see like the uh, the link to the PDF in the bottom right. Um, but um, I wanted to include this because um, oftentimes, especially in academia, we have um, to prove our methods by referring to that which has come before. Right. So the University of Michigan published a huge case study um, about their library website using this uh, thing called XO participatory design, which is where they printed a screenshot and then they asked users to cross out things that they didn't find useful, circle the things that they really thought was useful, you know, then draw some arrows and maybe attach some sticky notes to it. Um, but. <laughs> But it's published, right? And, and like, and, and they made some like sweeping usability improvements. So I just like I find that I often have to make the case that things that don't require like huge technology, like eye tracking studies or A/B testing, um, these no budget on paper usability methods um, are completely legit. And so if you need to reference one that's been published and lauded, um, presented at ALA, University of Michigan is for you. Um, so. 
um, what we're doing here basically with like markers is essentially um, the tactile equivalent of click tracking or heat mapping. These are this is data that you can glean from uh, Google Analytics that shows the actual engagement of your site. So whether or not you have this technology or this agency, whether or not you're in control of your library website and anything other than content, um, you can get a very similar look at what um, what's going on. Now, the, the circles and the crosses may not be enough to persuade um, those who make the decisions, but if you can implement something like Google Analytics on your site, then you can overlay them, and I'm, I'm fairly confident that if you do this right, they're going, like, where people actually click and what people actually find useful are going to overlay. Um, but this isn't just about them kind of like bitching about something that you're doing. It presents an opportunity for them to tell you about the features that they really care about. Um, and so instead of us taking an expert's opinion, we do it ourselves. We observe what pain points are for our users, and then we try to create a user journey of what comes up. So the end result might be something like this. People often ask me um, what my favorite library website is. I give you the Johns Hopkins Sheridan libraries of uh, um, where this is a high functioning research website designed by its users. Um, it's fast and it meets all the criteria, criteria that I think is important. Notice that it's not um, eye popping. Like there's there's nothing. I think it's, there's nothing like totally like beautiful about this. Um, it's not like necessarily like a, an attractive website. But the thing to point out is that this academic library website to be the most usable tool for its students and its faculty, the people who have to use it, obviates the need for the aesthetic. Instead, what it's doing is bringing everything that they care about to the front page. They can access the databases by name, by topic. It brings all the library guides up to the front. All of the stuff is brought up. The events are pushed down because oftentimes in academic libraries, we find that um, users don't want to be there. They just want to use, the, use our site as a tool, get it done, um, and then return to Facebook. But, um, Whatever you do, like whether whether or not you're working on like a web service or not, um, your end result should definitely be mobile first, because libraries as well as all, all the other industries are approaching this point um, defined as the mobile moment, where um, mobile traffic from a phone, a tablet, or even like a watch um, eclipses traditional non-mobile traffic. And whether it's true for you now, it will definitely be true for you later. And Planning a web service that is mobile first makes you um, make really important decisions because people tolerate even less cruft on a smaller screen. Navigation must flow. The content must be worth it. Everything must be fast. And uh, there is no place for things that people don't care about. This is the artful work of a web designer, Brad Frost, um, reflecting the thorough research of the Nielsen Norman group that showed that people have very capable and intentional banner blindness. Um, they don't look at things that look like ads or honestly things that they didn't even come for the site for. People don't browse. Um, they have a task in mind um, or they come in through like a Google search looking for a question. Library hours, they want to see your hours, they don't want to see your events. Um, 
And anything that interferes with the task at hand pulls down the net user experience. In fact, we can make like sweeping improvements to the UX of like a library web service just by knowing a little bit about how people read and having kind of like an effective control of our content. This um, spreadsheet shows a simple system I made um, called a uh, core content audit, which um, accomplishes a couple of tasks. Um, you put all your pages in the spreadsheet. Um, it can totally be tedious, but it gives you a bird's eye view of the whole shebang, um, who is responsible for what page, and so on. Um, and what's more, this brings this this particular system brings attention to problem content by assigning a rough score um, based off a bunch of heuristics. So you can throw anything in here: Google Analytics, when it was last updated, and so on. Um, but the score itself is calculated from these seven readings um, that use a five-point scale: uh, useful, accurate, voice tone, clear, concise, satisfying, and mobile first. Um, so, like, like by useful, um, I mean demonstrable use. So, like, in the, in this rubric, I'm meaning like a five. Like every user type, uh, every person who's going to use your website would find such and such useful. Like they'll find events useful. They'll find library hours useful. Um, where three might be a very specific audience, like an undergraduate or teens. Um, accurate is the content up to date. Is the voice and tone appropriate for the content? And this sometimes matters a lot more than you think. Um, overly stuffy, overly academic, overly uh, librarian-y um, tone of voice can actually turn a lot of people off, especially um, when you consider, I'm an academic librarian, so I always think about um, students who are in the middle of reading a ton of research on their own, and they're using the library website to get from point A to point B to complete a task. Um, we're just impacting their cognitive load by being erudite, right? So um, we're like our uh, our mission to help students get from point A to point B um, is improved by actually lightening the mood a little bit. Um, so is it appropriate? You know, or you might have like a warning, um, like if it's like a hurricane's coming in, you don't want to have like smiley faces or whatever. It just needs to be appropriate for the type of content that it is. Is it clear? Um, is it clear? <laughs> um, is it concise? Is it as short as it can possibly be um, while remaining, while providing all the information that it has? Um, is it satisficing? This is a concept that um, suggests that like the way users look at websites is they look for a good enough answer. Um, whenever the hours open, they'll see like an eight, and they'll be like, bam, eight o'clock, and they'll move on to the next thing. They're not looking for a robust answer. They're just looking for something that will get them to the next step. So. Satisficing in this case means scannable. Does it have very clear headings? Does it have nice links? Is it something that you can just skim and so pick up something? And more importantly than anything, and this is something I like, I added, um, and I don't think other content audits add. Is it mobile first? Um, you have libguides where um, you have like three columns across the across the way, um, and you might have, and a lot of people use like the center column as like the most important place. But LibGuides, as of version two, is now using Bootstrap. It's mobile first, which means on a phone, your most important content, if it's in the middle column, falls all the way underneath the leftmost column. So is your content structured? Does it show the most important content on a phone first? And through all this, giving it like kind of like a rough gut check, giving you a rough uh, feeling, um, 
will assign a score, and if it's in the red, you should probably pay attention to it. So that's just the idea. Um, and um, you can take it now if you want to. You can go to this link. It'll take you to a Google Doc a spreadsheet um, that's already set up for you, and you are totally welcome to rip it off, add it, um, improve it. Um, please do. Um, I think it's just a useful tool. I guess the point is that content quality really, 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 really matters everywhere. Um, and it might even matter more on channels like Facebook where, um, where um, poor content, content that doesn't get engaged with, um, actually uh, like squelches the visibility of the brand. 78% of all adults have a Facebook account. And this is data that matters because where your patrons spend most of their time um, influences the ba their basic expectations of the library. Being user-centric demands that we are aware and we don't scoff at the, the habits our users have. Because precisely a library service has basic expectations, and these expectations are informed by a, a rule, the law of Jacob, Jacob Nielsen's law of um, web design or something like that. I forget what it was, but it's basically, it's a law. It's always true. Your users spend more time on other sites than they do on yours. Um, and the only site that can really say otherwise is probably like Facebook. Um, because convention matters, and we have to respect the convention, the conventions that Facebook and Amazon and Google set. And we're already inundated with it because, you know, do we think that we put the menu at the top because that's the most logical place for it? or because that's where it should go. Here's Amazon, right? You have a logo on the top left, you have large search boxes, you have buttons, you have blue links, you have a top menu, a side menu, you have breadcrumbs. These are the things that we rip off and that inform our principles of what makes a good website, just as they do for our users. This echoes true for data as well, and as the conventions change, um, we need to be aware of that. So the most relevant trends that I think a library should watch are in e-commerce, and that's precisely because if you think about like what a library service is, um, it is a cart where people put items and then they put them on hold or they check them out or, or whatever. Sometimes they even have to pay fines. Um, and we need to watch what's happening in this industry in particular, but it's happening around the web. Because mobile web usage is totally growing, and that means another thing to pay attention to, the weight of our web pages. This might be a little technical, but um, the average weight of the website, when I took this from the HTTP archive, was, um, I'll just do a little, it's about like 1.5 megabytes large, right? So um, when you think of bytes, it's, it's largely images, it's largely scripts, um, but when you think of bytes, when I talk about bytes and when people talk about bytes, you need to think seconds because seconds and how fast your website is matters. So if your website loads within 100 milliseconds or within even like 300 milliseconds, um, 
it's pretty good. But at the 300 millisecond level, it's already starting to feel sluggish. If it takes up to a second, um, we are aware that the machine is working. Anything that takes one plus seconds, um, we're having a mental contact switch. We're like, oh, um, we're no longer expecting the site to load. Maybe we're thinking about something or paying attention to something else as it loads. And predominantly, the data suggests that if our site takes longer than 10 seconds, um, people are just going to give up. And 10 seconds is a good thing to point, or a good number to keep in your head, but consider that for every one second that the page takes a load, there is a 65% increase in bounce rate. Bounce rate means um, the a user comes onto your page and doesn't interact with anything and then immediately leaves. To put this into context, into like a user story, like present or pretend that um, you are coming home from work, you have limited time before you can get home, you are in traffic at peak time, you have a book that maybe you need to drop off, um, and you want to see if the library is open, right? So you're at a stoplight, and, um, and you pull out your phone, and you're going to see, you're going to navigate to the website to see whether, to, to make that decision, make an instant decision, whether or not you end up at the library. And here's like what the touch points kind of look like. You're glancing haphazardly at the red light, you open the browser, you type a really long URL sometimes, you wait 15 seconds for the site to load, you locate the hours, the light turns green, you continue on your day. But remember this data here, where after 10 seconds people pretty much bounce without fault, the opportunity here is pretty much gone. He doesn't have time to locate the hours. The lights turn green, he has to go, and this is a missed opportunity. You will never know how many missed opportunities there were to there were or that you had to even try to connect to this patron. This is the value of plotting a customer journey, um, of designing for the user experience, because if you do otherwise, you're blind. <laughs>